I don't have a comment because I was also on Twitter for most of that. That's cool. But I think it's great. Appreciate your candor. Welcome back to The Common Law, Minnesota's best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. I'm Mark, an ex-clerk for Justices Lilla Haug and McCaig. And I'm Allison, and I clerked for Justices Strauss and Hudson. We've got a case today about medical malpractice and what a doctor needs to do before he or she owes a duty to a patient. But before we get there, this is uh, episode one of season two of The Common Law. I'm sure you've all been uh, waiting in anticipation. So let's get started with some legal news. Uh, We're going to start with an article I'm fascinated by. This is from the Winona Daily News uh, from some months ago. And it's about the process that occurs when a judicial seat uh, may be switched between counties. So some time ago, uh, Judge Jeffrey Thompson, uh, who's a state district court judge in Winona County, in Minnesota's third judicial district, announced that he was going to retire in April 2018. Uh, upon this announcement, judges in the third district began discussing whether or not to move that seat that he held from Winona County to Olmstead County after his retirement. So in January 2018, the judges held a bench meeting and they put the issue to a vote. They voted... Uh, and there was a tie. The judge retiring abstained from the vote. When there's a tie in this circumstance, apparently the deciding vote goes to the chief justice of the judicial district. She had voted, uh, you know, one way or the other, but she decided rather than casting a tie-breaking vote to uh, send the issue to the Minnesota Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, in turn, opened a public comment period about this issue. And so various people weighed in. Uh, Winona County attorney Karen Sonneman argued that moving the seat away from Winona County could jeopardize the county's justice system, including the drug court, and noted that uh, there are three-year rolling averages of weighted caseloads. This is kind of the metric by which Minnesota courts determine where to allocate judge seats and that that uh, moving the seat from Winona to Olmstead County would leave Winona kind of in, in a lurch. Um, on the other side, the chief judge of the third district made the case that uh, Olmstead County had a growing need for judges. The Minnesota Supreme Court issued a ruling that the seat will switch from Winona County to Olmstead County, and they cited the chief judge's uh, commitment in her public comments to. Uh, allocating sufficient judicial resources to maintain uh, Winona County's drug court specifically. And the the county attorney for Winona County said that in the wake of the decision, Winona County will rely heavily on retired and visiting judges to fill the gap created by the departure. Um, This is a subject about which I I know nothing, but if you spend 10 seconds thinking about just administering a state court system, uh, it's obvious that it would come up from time to time. And It sounds like a civil process through and through, a well-considered one, and best of all, one that the Minnesota Supreme Court was involved in adjudicating. Things I learned from you telling me about this case is I didn't know that judges in the district have authority on where those judges, which county within the district, those judges sit. So that's interesting for me to know. And also, I do not believe this was an actual case. 
and argument before the Minnesota Supreme Court. So this was just something that the Supreme Court had authority over and its inherent authority over the judicial system in the state of Minnesota. Extremely cool reporting by the Winona Daily News. Excellent job. Moving on, we have a little update for you on the judicial elections that are coming up in November. The MSBA released a poll recently of its membership. Um, They released this poll on August 1st, indicating their membership's preference in the two contested appellate judicial races. Listeners might remember that Justice Chudich is the only contested Minnesota Supreme Court justice, and Judge Jessen on the Court of Appeals is the only contested Court of Appeals judge. So this poll was conducted from July 9th to July 30th of MSBA's 5,560 members, they say 30% responded. So the results are that for the contested Supreme Court race, Justice Chudich got 95.81% of the vote. It's extremely low, folks. Her challenger that listeners should be very familiar with, Michelle McDonald, got 4.19% of the vote. That was 69 votes. Nice. Then in the Court of Appeals race, Judge Lucinda Jessen got 90.94% of the vote, so less of a vote percentage than the incumbent on the Minnesota Supreme Court. And her challenger, Anthony Brown, got 9.06% of the votes. I was impressed by the incumbency advantage here. Of course, I've heard nothing but good things about Judge Jessen, but uh, unlike... The Supreme Court race, uh, this is a a respectable uh, and real challenger and uh, obviously hard to get a foothold against a court of appeals judge who is widely respected. Certainly, at least within the membership of the MSBA, these numbers would probably look a little different if this was a general population poll, but not incredibly surprising um, to me anyway. In line with these results and the judicial election updates, we have a very abbreviated Top T's and Tweets segment for you today in which we will bring you one tweet. It's actually from August 8th. But this tweet is one of his famous On This Day tweets. And I will just read you the first tweet. On this day in 1975, the Minnesota Supreme Court upheld a ruling that a disbarred lawyer could not be on the ballot for the Minnesota Supreme Court because he was, quote, not learned in the law, unquote, as required by Article 6, Section 5 of the Minnesota Constitution. That case was called Peterson v. Knudsen from 1975. What's interesting about this and the conversation that it has since spurred is that, as our listeners know, Michelle McDonald does have a law license, but it was suspended, and now she is on a probation period. So... The requirement that she be learned in the law has not been applied or tested in the context of a suspended and then reinstated on a probationary period license. So interesting how one of Justice Thiessen's on this day tweets relates to kind of a central issue that might be a factor in the judicial election. Yeah, I don't think he noted that in the tweet, right? Uh, That's us picking that up. Right. He did not make a comment on that. I don't think as a sitting justice he would feel comfortable commenting on a a contested race. 
but certainly others have noted that that might be a factor. One last piece of legal news. Uh, this is a Star Tribune story way back from March. For Ralph Campbell, the glue of Hennepin County DWI court, work is personal. So a little bit of background about Hennepin County Drug Court, where this story takes place. Repeat DWI offenders who are seeking sobriety enroll in an 18-month program in Hennepin County where they're expected to comply with a set of expectations such as random drug tests, regular court appearances, attendance at support groups, court-ordered curfew, and meeting with sponsors. If they complete the program, graduates are discharged from probation early. If they fail the program, they're subjected to more stringent probation supervision and if they commit another DWI, uh, that will become a felony charge. The story here is about a guy named Ralph Campbell. Used to be uh, used to have problems with alcohol, but has been but has been sober for 29 years. And he's now a licensed drug and alcohol counselor, and he has been a volunteer at the DWI court since 2008. Um, and it sounds like a, a really positive story there. Hennepin County Judge Marta Chu said he's the right amount of pushy for someone needing to, to address an issue that involves shame and regret. He's pushing for change, but not over the edge. It's a delicate balance. Uh, so Campbell's mostly involved at the beginning of participants' recovery. Uh, he runs the program's orientation program and uh, also its early AA group uh, while people are still really trying to work their way out of addiction. Uh, and his Current and latest initiative is to cultivate kind of a pool of graduates uh, from the program who will remain involved as volunteers. So, not an attorney, um, among other cool qualities about uh, Ralph Campbell, and a rather tenuous attorney connection, but uh, a nice human interest story in the strip. One last announcement that we would like to make before we move on to resulted cases is that for those of you who may have been paying close attention to Justice Thiessen's Twitter threads on Minnesota Supreme Court history, you now have a chance to show off what you've learned. The Minnesota Historical Society has announced its date for its annual Justice Jeopardy, which will be this October 11th. Justice Anderson and Justice Lillehaug will face off with a team of lawyers. Should be a good time and obviously... Mark and I will be there. So we'll, we'll post the link to RSVP in the show notes and hope to see you there. We'll see you there. Now to catch you up on a couple cases for which we now have opinions, uh, cases that the common law has highlighted in the past. Uh, the first is State v. Edstrom. The chief justice wrote for a three to two majority uh, in a court without Justice Thiessen and with Justice Hudson recused uh, that a Fourth Amendment search did not occur when a narcotics-detecting dog sniffed at an apartment door without a warrant. The court held that under a Fourth Amendment property rights analysis, quote, the area immediately outside Edstrom's, Edstrom's door is not cartilage of Edstrom's home. Under this Fourth Amendment privacy rights analysis, uh, the police did not violate Edstrom's reasonable expectation of privacy, in part because the dog could only detect illegal activity. This is a point that was disputed during oral argument. Uh, as to whether uh, you know a person in an apartment might have had uh, marijuana for medical legal use. Uh, separately, as to Edstrom's uh, claim under the Minnesota Constitution, the court wrote that an earlier Minnesota case called Davis controls. 
Because while the sniff was a search under Article 1, Section 10 of the Minnesota Constitution, it was nonetheless legal because Davis only requires that officers are lawfully present in the building with a reasonable, articulable suspicion of criminal activity, which the court decided they had here. One thing that I think is interesting about the opinion in this case is that when we talked about this case on the common law, we didn't really distinguish between the two distinct challenges under the federal constitution and the Minnesota constitutions because it didn't really look like that the parties had kept them that distinct, that they were kind of the federal law and the state law were tracking each other. And so there was no real distinction between them. But the court, I think, did a good job separating out the constitutional argument under the Fourth Amendment, which they said there was no search, and the state constitution, which there was a search, but it was permissible. The next case that has resulted that we've highlighted on the common law is Johnson v. State, which is the case about retroactivity of the Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson cases, which held that warrantless blood and urine tests are unconstitutional. Therefore, refusal to take a warrantless blood or urine test cannot be criminalized under Minnesota state law. So in a unanimous opinion authored by the chief, the court held that Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson is a substantive rule and therefore applies retroactively to all test refusal convictions of warrantless blood or urine tests. A couple of interesting points about this opinion is that in oral argument and in our episode on this case, there was a lot of time spent in whether this rule announced by Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson was a new rule or an old rule because new rules are only eligible to apply retroactively, whereas old rules applied to new facts cannot be applied retroactively. In our episode, we mentioned that both parties had agreed that this was a new rule, therefore could be eligible to apply retroactively. And the court obviously didn't want to wade into whether this was a new rule or old rule, as we could tell in oral argument was quite a difficult question. So they just write, quote, the parties agree that the Birchfield rule is a new rule for purposes of the Teague retroactivity analysis. And we will assume it is a new rule in this appeal. So it kind of raises some subsequent questions. Are they going to decide when a rule is a new rule or an old rule? Are district courts in retroactivity analyses to come just supposed to assume that things are new if the parties agree that they're new? Seems kind of wishy-washy to me, especially because they made a point, rightly, to bring this up so heavily in oral argument. And now on to our featured case for our September episode, Warren v. Dinder. The facts of this case are Susan Warren went to see her nurse practitioner at a medical clinic in Hibbing, complaining of symptoms of fever, chills, and abdominal pain. After examining Warren and obtaining some blood work, the nurse practitioner felt that she needed to be admitted to the hospital. The nurse practitioner did not herself have any admitting ad privileges at the nearby hospital, which was called Fairview Range Medical Center. So she did what was customary when she had a patient that she believed needed to be admitted. She called the hospitalist at the nearby Fairview Hospital, in this case, this was Dr. Dinter, and relayed her thoughts about her patient, Warren, and whether her patient should be admitted to the hospital. So this clinic where the nurse practitioner worked was not affiliated with Fairview Hospital, and there was no 
written contract between the clinic and the hospital. But this was a common occurrence when someone at the clinic needed to be admitted to the hospital, they would call a hospitalist and ask for admission. The nurse practitioner described her patient's symptoms and lab results over the phone, and Dr. Dinter at Fairview Hospital explicitly told the nurse practitioner that Warren did not need to be hospitalized, but instead her diabetes was simply out of control. Three days later, her patient died due to staph sepsis, which means the infection entered her bloodstream and simply overwhelmed her. Justin Warren, her son, then brought a medical malpractice wrongful death claim against Dr. Dinter and Fairview Hospital. So appellant Justin Warren claims that Dr. Dinter was negligent in refusing to admit Warren to Fairview Hospital. The district court granted summary judgment to Dinter and Fairview on the basis that Dinter and Fairview owed no duty of care to Warren. Then the Court of Appeals affirmed the grant of summary judgment saying that a mere consultation between the nurse practitioner at the clinic and Dr. Dinter at Fairview was not sufficient to create a physician-patient relationship to establish a duty. So listeners of our interview in our last episode with Justice Lillehog will be interested to note that the Court of Appeals released this as a non-precedential, unpublished opinion, but the court, the Supreme Court, granted review in it anyway. So one reason the Court of Appeals may have been timid here in its willingness to publish this as precedential is that it made clear in its opinion that there was no clear guiding precedent in this area. It ended its majority opinion, there was a dissent, with this quote. Absent a policy determination by the Minnesota Supreme Court that a physician who provides non-contractual informal consultation to another physician owes a duty to the latter physician's patient, we conclude that no physician-patient relationship was created here, and therefore Dr. Dinter did not owe a duty of care to Ms. Warren. So that's practically the Court of Appeals begging the court to grant review and offer some guidance on this issue. So on appeal to the Supreme Court, the issue presented, as stated by the parties, is whether a physician-patient relationship was established between Susan Warren and Dr. Dinter, which imposed a duty of care on Dr. Dinter. Okay, so just to get some baseline law down, uh, this is a, a negligence claim, and a, a claim for negligence requires a violation of the duty of care. So uh, whether a duty of care exists here is going to be a threshold question and indeed kind of the main question that the justices will talk about. The general rule is that in this context, uh, a duty of care is owed uh, only between those in a doctor-patient relationship. That's the general rule. Uh, and the general common law rule is that a person doesn't owe a duty of care to another to aid or protect them absent a special relationship, that's one, or two, a situation where the defendant's own conduct created a foreseeable risk of injury to a foreseeable plaintiff. So as you can see, what's foreseeable, etc., cetera, uh, will be debated. Uh, lastly, the existence of a contract doesn't necessarily govern the existence of a special relationship like a physician-patient relationship. Rather, uh, it's the presence of a foreseeable risk that can create this duty. So the fact that, uh, you know, you'll, as you'll see, there's there's no contract uh, in a formal sense in this case uh, doesn't necessarily uh, end the analysis. Right. So the question here is whether there was a special relationship formed between Denter and Warren as a result of the nurse practitioner's phone call. But the court may also look to the general foreseeability 
standard to impose a duty on Dinter as a result of his own conduct. And the law is not quite clear on which test, the special relationship test or the general foreseeability test, that the court should use here, or if they are the same test in this case, but that is something you'll hear them trying to sort out in oral argument. So the attorney arguing for Warren is Sam Hansen. You might know him as an ex-justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. He was succeeded by Justice Dietzen, who was then succeeded by Justice McCaig. Um, He's been in the news vis-a-vis the Supreme Court uh, recently in that he represented Governor Dayton in the high-profile line-item veto case. I have to admit, when I saw his name on the brief, I assumed he was arguing for the hospital, but it looks like Warren also lawyered up here with a former Minnesota Supreme Court justice. Yeah, that's a serious hire. The attorney arguing for respondents Dinter and Fairview here is William L. Davidson of Lind, Jessen, Sullivan, and Peterson. Davidson uh, is a frequent flyer at the court, familiar probably to many of the justices, he also serves on the court's advisory committee on the rules of civil appellate procedure. He was super sharp at this argument. I thought, I it was thought great. he did a great job. So the basic structure of the party's arguments obviously concerns the question of whether there was a duty. Warren argues that the Court of Appeals got the law wrong, that even on the facts that we have, Dinter had a duty to Warren because by refusing to admit him to the hospital in the course of the phone call, that he directed the care of the patient by essentially ruling out the possibility that Warren, the patient, would be admitted to the hospital. Warren also argues that there are some genuine disputes of material fact regarding the underlying basis for the duty, and thus the Court of Appeals should be reversed and the court and the case should go back to trial. Conversely, Dinter and Fairview argue that there's no duty owed to the patient by Dinter and Fairview Hospital, and that there's absolutely no factual issue as to this question. So my take on this case, uh, after reading the briefs for the first time from a practical standpoint, is that the uh, Warren is the one facing the uphill battle, not only because... Uh, they've lost at the district court and the court of appeals, but because uh, they're the one trying to get the court to establish uh, what would essentially be a new uh, duty for physicians. Um, so kind of always a scary place to be as a litigant, asking courts to uh, hold a significant, hold a large group of people in society responsible for a new thing. And uh, especially a tough climb because the case law on attaching new duties to physicians in Minnesota is pretty thin, as uh, Dinter points out at length. Um, that There's the general duty of care, uh, kind of having to do with a traditional physician-patient relationship, and then there are very limited exceptions. Uh, and I thought the court was, given that state of play, pretty solicitous of what Warren was uh, putting forward, and there were a number of hypotheticals to try to test the boundaries of what this new duty of care might be. If Dr. Dinder had just limited himself to the admission decision and not offered his opinion as to Ms. Warren's diagnosis, would that have, would a duty of care have arisen there? That's a very interesting question. Uh, and you don't need to reach it, fortunately, because of the facts in this case. So I'm a little surprised at how Sam Hansen chose to answer this question from Justice Judich because 
And my understanding, Warren's brief clearly argues that as a function of Dinter's position as a hospitalist, someone who takes care of patients in the hospital and makes admissions decisions on whether people should be admitted to the hospital or not, that duty that he has to patients arises when he is making the admissions decision. And then his brief argues that the duty of Dr. Dinter was later, quote, cemented with the further fact that he made the diagnosis. Um, But I understand Warren's brief here to say that he would have a duty regardless of whether he rendered an additional diagnosis of -of out-of-control diabetes. And then Justice Lillehug chimed in with another hypothetical. Counsel, let's let's change the facts a little bit. I'm trying to figure out exactly how much the intermediation of nurse practitioner Simon makes a difference to the issue of duty. Let's say that, changing the facts, that Ms. Warren had showed up at the hospital with her records in hand and said, my nurse practitioner says I need to be admitted, and they refer her to Dr. Dinter. He looks at the records and says, no, you don't need to be admitted. You've got diabetes. Go back and tell nurse practitioner Simon. Does he have a duty in that case to um, adhere to the standard of care in connection with hospital admissions? So in response to that question, the attorney uh, gives an answer, but one that is not satisfactory to, to Justice Lillehaug. So uh, Justice Lillehaug re-asks the question and then is met with this response. Possibly, Your Honor. I'm, I'm standing here representing Dr. Dinter, and I certainly appreciate that the court has hypotheticals to help it inform its decisions. But ultimately, the court respectfully doesn't issue advisory opinions, and we don't have those facts. Sounds like... Davidson did not listen to our August interview with Justice Linda Hogg. That is the only incorrect way to answer a hypothetical question from Justice Linda Hogg. Not, not good, not convincing to Justice Linda Hogg, not helpful for the court. So we'll play another clip for you that maybe just helps reflect the confusion of both the litigants and the court at points about what standards are being applied and, uh, and how to apply them. This is the chief trying to, I think, kind of index everything that's going on in the briefs and get a direction from the litigants about what the actual arguments are that uh, the parties want to highlight. Um, So I'm trying to figure out how Skilling and Malloy, two cases from our court, square with Doe 169 and Damangala, two cases from our court. So in Doe 169, we said Minnesota law follows the general common law rule that a person does not owe a duty of care to another if the harm is caused by a third party's conduct. So that's a general common law rule. And here, the third party conduct, as the respondents would say, is the nurse. So then we recognize in Dose 169 that there are some exceptions to that. One is if there's a special relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant. And the example that we give in the in Doe 169 is Bierke, a case that I think you're well familiar with. But the other exception we talk about is um, um, a, an instance where in, that we discussed in Domongala. A duty of care arises when the defendant's own conduct creates a for, foreseeable risk of injury to a foreseeable plaintiff. So we've got the special relationship, and we've got when your own conduct. But when, then we go further and we say when it's your own conduct, there needs to be misfeasance. So I'm just trying to figure out, so we don't talk really about any of that in Malloy and Skilling, probably because the, the 
as, as you and I talked about earlier, the physician speaks directly with the parents in those cases. So, so maybe with that little bit more background, you can help me see how these cases fit together. So the chief there is kind of talking about at various points, the court has applied the special relationship standard to impose a duty on a physician. But at other times, the court has acknowledged that the general foreseeability standard can govern a physician's conduct and impose a duty on a physician who is giving advice or otherwise directing or participating in the care of a patient. And the briefs aren't quite clear on what argument Warren is making for the establishment of a duty here. And it's interesting that the court does spend quite a bit of time in oral argument asking counsel to make sense of the law of the Minnesota Supreme Court where the cases are conflicting there. Here, Justice Hudson asks counsel that question. How do you see the law right now? Because it it seemed to me when I read Stallings and Togstad and Malloy, I came away with the belief that there is precedent for the position that appellants take here. There is precedent for using foreseeability as the linchpin, as opposed to an expressed uh, contract or relationship between the doctor and and, uh, the the patient. Um, How do you see the law, and what do you do with those three cases? Sure. So obviously the court has something to sort out by way of what standard they are planning on using to impose a duty or not impose a duty on Dr. Dinter here. That question does become relevant in another line of questioning um, by Justice Chudich, followed up by Justice McKegg on what these various standards mean for hospitals like this one in Hibbing in a more rural setting versus those perhaps in the Twin Cities. It, it seems like there are maybe a couple competing theories here But if we're using the tort foreseeability theory, does it matter that this hospital was the only hospital in town as opposed to, you know, hospitalists in the Twin Cities where there's many hospitals? If one turns you down, you can go to the next person. Kind of a broader question, and that is that um, if the result of this case causes a disparate treatment, for example, urban versus rural, or... Indian Health Services, if you go to a hospital at Indian Health Services and you're limited, um, I think similar to the question that Justice Chudich asked, you're limited to which hospital list you could have um, consultation with. What should or should that not play in our decision-making process? What role should that play? So an issue kind of lurking throughout the oral argument is a less... uh, high-flying legal issue and a more kind of trial-bound fact issue, which is whether the opinions arrived at by the district court and the court of appeals uh, in fact relied on facts that are disputed. Uh, This is, again, like Allison said, a summary judgment motion, so all the facts needed to be construed in the light most favorable to Warren. So to the extent Warren has deposition testimony contradicting uh, testimony by Dinter about uh, what took place on this call, or what the contractual arrangement between the hospital is, or any of the underlying facts that may contribute to the court's to the court's conclusion about whether a duty existed, then there's an argument that the Minnesota Supreme Court should not be deciding the duty issue because uh, they would only do that on a full factual record after trial, not when they should just be assuming facts favorable to. Warren. So a number of justices brought up different facets of 
this issue uh, throughout oral argument. So one of the first possible disputes of material fact underlying the duty question under either standard is the question of whether Dinter, as a hospitalist, someone who takes care of patients solely in the hospital, is in effect a gatekeeper of who does or does not get admitted to the hospital. There were differing opinions from counsel on this in oral argument. And I also Why wouldn't it though? Because she's talking to a physician, she's talking to the hospitalist whose job it is is to determine whether a patient is uh, acute enough to warrant admission. So why wouldn't she rely on that? I'll respectfully disagree that that's Dr. Dinter's job, Your Honor. Dr. Dinter's job as a hospitalist is to care for patients that are admitted into the hospital. Whether his job encompasses a, a gatekeeper role is part of the dispute before this court, whether he's to make solely admission decisions. But again... Well, so isn't that a question of fact that goes to the question of duty? I mean, doesn't that need to be resolved somehow? I, I, I mean, to under, I mean, to understand whether that gatekeeper role is part of their, their, their kind of set duties or not, I mean, it seems to me... I mean, that is that question kind of goes to the heart of a lot of what we're talking about here. Another possible factual dispute raised by the chief is on the question of whether a quote-unquote special relationship even existed between Dinder and Warren. Construing the evidence in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, um, it, it, it just, it, it seems to me that there's a fact question here about whether there's an implied relationship. I mean, I understand you're saying, well, it was a less than 10-minute phone call. Um, and the question that was asked to Nurse Simon is a, it's a very leading question. I've been through her deposition, but, but it is what it is. And it just it seems to me that when you read it in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, there's a fact question here on the implied relationship. Yet another question uh, about whether we have disputed facts here. This one concerning uh, Dr. Baldwin, who we haven't discussed, but this is a, a physician at the essential clinic where the nurse practitioner worked. Davidson, let me go right to the question that I asked Mr. Hansen. What is the status of uh, the doctor's uh, admitting privileges, the doctor that was was there, Baldwin, Dr. Baldwin's admitting privileges? Yes, and, and does that matter here? The status is, yes, Dr. Baldwin had admitting privileges. She had the privilege. She could have admitted and to your question, does it matter? I think it does, although perhaps not for the sole question this court accepted review of. Well, it, so, so I'm struggling with this, and it seems to me there's a factual dispute between counsel here about exactly what kinds of privileges she had, and if that's the case, it, it seems to me that could be important. That strikes me as um, uh, at least a factual dispute that somebody may have to decide in terms of what underlies a duty requirement. So is there a factual dispute here as to whether or not there is an ability on the part of the doctor to admit? So all of this conversation about whether a physician has a duty to a patient when discussing that patient in a phone call to a nurse practitioner or a third-party provider like here is that there's this whole conversation is happening against a backdrop here of case law on informal consultations in the medical field. So I'm not sure if this court, but courts generally um, have carefully uh, tiptoed around this question of informal consultations in the past, saying that there's a public policy interest in encouraging physicians to freely contact one another and render informal advice 
And this public policy interest is best advanced when those physicians involved in those conversations don't have to worry about being exposed to additional liability. So that's that's the backdrop that does permeate a lot of the briefs, particularly on Dr. Denter's side, for not exposing Dr. Denter to liability for a telephone conversation here. And, and it seems to me this is the kind of thing that defendants are concerned about, uh, respondents are concerned about. Um, there's an operation, a uh, doctor's about to perform an operation the next day. It's a fairly novel procedure. There are a number of ways to approach that procedure. So he or she calls up uh, her colleague, his or her colleague uh, here in the cities and says, uh, who they know has experience in this area and says, you know, here's how I'm thinking about approaching it. And that doctor says, well, no, I would do it. You know, you can do it that way, but I would, I would go this direction. I would use this, this um, you know, uh, way of doing it instead. Doctor follows that advice and the patient is harmed. Where is that kind of scenario? I mean, again, you have a situation like with Mr. Denter here. This doctor has no knowledge about this patient, has had no contact, nothing, but they're getting the call uh, from a colleague. So where does that fall, that kind of situation? So about uh, 45 or so minutes into the oral argument, uh, Justice Lillehaug interrupted with uh, an unusual comment. Chief Justice, I wonder if the uh, gallery could be instructed not to make face facial gestures or nodding and so on. There is uh, some of that's going on and is distracting to me. Let's, let's just try to focus on the issue at hand. So much to unpack here. One, there are people in the gallery we looked, I don't think you can see the facial gestures uh, or whatever else he was referring to and, on the video feed. And do I wish I could have seen those facial gestures? Desperately. Um, but there are people in the gallery uh, watching the case. We do know that. They apparently were distracting Justice Willehauk. Um I think generally it, it's kind of poor form to be uh, performing in the gallery. You know, it's a serious thing and you shouldn't be a jerk, um, but I'm surprised that Justice Lillehaug was uh, distracted, although he may have been uh, being kind of modest and uh, really making a decorum point generally. But secondly, I would have expected some more backing from the chief here. I completely agree. One, I think Lillehaug should have said, I don't think he should have said it's distracting to me. I think he should have made the point more broadly that it was a distracting thing to be doing. Like you were saying, make a general decorum point. And I completely agree. The chief was very tepid in her defense of courtroom decorum. And in particular, Justice Lillehog's decision to bring it up in open court. Very surprising. The chief uh, is not shy about correcting perceived uh, failures of behavior in the courtroom by any party. Um, but I guess maybe she found the faces fun. So in addition to the briefs from the parties here, we have two amicus briefs, two friend-of-the-court briefs. So the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, and the Minnesota Medical Association filed a brief on behalf of Dinter and Fairview here. The brief seems to just reiterate the need to preserve and encourage these informal consultations between independent providers by not imposing any duties on them that would expose them to malpractice liability. So it's an overarching policy, certainly, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the legal question, which is whether Dr. Denter, as a hospitalist, had a duty to an outside patient 
in this case. So I think personally that the AMA and the MMA probably should have been more on top of protecting the liability of people in the role that Dr. Dinter plays, which is hospitalists, which is a newer invention of the medical field. And I think they should have been more on top of establishing parameters for liability for hospitalists for making the decisions they make every day. The Minnesota Association for Justice filed a brief on behalf of Warren. This brief, first of all, was shorter, which automatically makes me like it more. It made the legal argument that a duty can be imposed on physicians not only in the context of this special relationship, but focused on the foreseeability of harm from the defendant Dinter's conduct. This brief also really gets into the actual role of the hospitalist here. So the Minnesota Association for Justice says that the physician-patient relationship for hospitalists who specialize in patient care starts at the very decision of admission. So I thought that was more helpful. However, I do think that that might be overstating the case a little bit. Any predictions on how this case will turn out? I think it it's tough because there's a substantive issue like we discussed, and then there's the lurking uh, genuine dispute of material fact issue. And I think the court is going to decide for Warren on the genuine dispute of material fact issue. High courts in my Appellate courts, in my experience, are very uh, delicate about usurping the trial court's role and uh, usurping the the litigants' rights with regard to the procedural posture of the case. So, you know, if they send this back down uh, to get further factual clarification uh, or, or trial record on some of these issues, that doesn't foreclose them from ultimately deciding that no duty duty of care was owed, that uh, Warren does not get. Relief, but that would be my guess. Uh, a number of justices seemed concerned that they were uh, weighing in uh, too early. I completely agree. I don't think that there was one justice up there who wasn't skeptical of whether we currently have enough information to make a definitive decision on the existence of a duty. So I, I agree. I think we're going back to trial for more facts at a minimum. Um, especially given the sparse law on the issue that also doesn't provide any guidance. Um, the court doesn't sound like it wants to decide any unresolved factual disputes on top of that. I wouldn't be surprised if we got a 7-0 vote to send it back. I mean, there seems to be questions about whether Baldwin had admitting privileges, whether Dinter even actually refused admission in the first place, um, whether a hospitalist is a gatekeeper, like we discussed um, and we don't have the record before us, we only have the briefs, but it seems unlikely that if the council is fighting about the interpretation of the record, that the court looking at the record after argument is actually going to solve any of these problems. And then do you have thoughts about who wrote, who's going to write this opinion? So first of all, Justice Anderson was first questioner right out of the gate for both attorneys and on rebuttal, which might be a clue, but then he didn't ask any other questions during oral argument, so... That puts him on my list, but makes me quite skeptical. Justice Chudich was kind of on fire with her hypotheticals, but I don't trust her after she tricked me into thinking she was the author on Johnson <laughs> with similar tactics, and it was actually the chief. But she is also on my list. Um, Justice Thiessen didn't really get in there as much as he was the last time we had um, oral argument with him, so I don't, I don't think he's got it. Justice McKegg piped in only once, maybe twice. Um, 
So I'm probably thinking Justice Chudich or Justice Hudson. If I had to pick, I'd pick Justice Hudson just based on the number of questions she asked. I would say Justice Chudich, but I think her thoroughness just fools me every time. What do you think? I think the same. Uh, What did we learn from the case today, Mark? Well, we learned that if you want to make silly faces in the gallery of the Minnesota Supreme Courtroom, uh, you should do it while Justice Little Hug isn't looking. We also learned to not answer the phone when you are working at the hospital. Ever. Don't ask, answer any phone at a hospital. It's the ever. only way to avoid malpractice liability. That's for you, doctors. So that wraps up Season 2, Episode 1 of The Common Law. Check out our website, thecommnlaw.com, Minnesota's best and only free CLE calendar. Check, out, uh, uh, check us out on Twitter, at The Common Law. Uh, and thanks, as always, to our communications director, Chloe. Have a nice one, commoners. I love that. Love a feel-good story. I was going to say feel-good. Did feel you good? cut the mic for that last comment you made? Because I really want to put it at the start, start of the show. Uh, the mic has been running since you've been talking. Great news.